0: PDOCast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich and joining me making his triumphant return. It's been ages now since he's made an appearance on the PDO cast, but finally we can have him back on, and it's my good buddy Frank Saravelli. Frank, what's going on, man?
1: Well, it's because you're no longer with that company that can't be named. I mean, it's like the one unwritten rule of uh, sports media that I learned since joining TSN is you don't talk about the other company. Anything that happens on Twitter might as well not have happened if it came from the other company.
0: I have no idea which company you could possibly be talking about. Um, I'm excited to have you on, man. There's so much for us to talk about. You know, usually with these in-season episodes, unless it's around trade deadline time or whatever, there isn't too many kind of current events or actually moving pieces. It's a lot of like I'm doing team deep dives or I'm doing rankings of forwards and defensemen. But now, I mean, Mm -hmm. since you and I have... Been trading messages on Twitter and trying to figure out when we were going to finally do this thing. Since then, over the past week, there's been like three or four big developments in the uh, in the NHL landscape for us to discuss. So, I mean, I think let's just kind of start in chronological order from most most recent, especially with uh, your connections to the Philadelphia area and the Flyers and the uh, the news today that Ron Hextall has been uh, relieved of his duties as the GM of the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, when you first saw this come across, um, either you i don't know—people are still using Blackberries these days, or whatever device you're using. Um, <laughs> what was your uh, what was your first kind of takeaway, and were you surprised at all by it?
1: Well, I knew something was going to happen. It was just a question of what. Would it be the coach? Would it be the decision to bring up Carter Hart from the AHL to solve these goaltending problems? Uh, I didn't think it would be Ron Hextall, but I'm really not shocked at the end of the day, considering that something had to happen and the fact that Ron Hextall was so resistant to deviating from his plan that it makes sense that he's the guy that goes. I think this has been simmering under the surface for a bit. Uh, It's quite clear that the Flyers and Paul Holmgren thought that they should be doing more to try and win. And I don't even want to call it speeding up the rebuild, rebuild. I mean, we're in year five of the Hextall plan Mm -hmm. at some point they probably deserve to take that step and by Ron Hextall's own admission in the preseason he thought this would be the team this year to help start to take that step they lost in the first round last year I think their goal was to win around this year something that this franchise hasn't done since 2012 and you look at the success of the Flyers overall you know they're one team where mediocrity they don't stand for that and that's been the definition of the Hextall tenure, the Hextall era, is that they're probably, Dimitri the most mediocre team in pro sports when you get down to the numbers. They've missed the playoffs as many years as they've made it since Hextall has been in, in charge. Their points percentage is 550. Uh, they're not good or bad. They're just kind of there. And I think that's one of the big issues with the Flyers is that apathy was setting in. They have a bunch of difference makers on their team. And Ron Hextall, you know, aside from drafting really well and sticking to his plan, um, he hasn't done much to help this team move forward in a positive direction in the here and now. He didn't make a single trade other than Peter Morazic at the deadline last year, really, because he had to um, when both goalies went down. He hasn't done anything in the here and now to help them. So it's great that he's drafted well. I think the Flyers wanted him to adapt a little bit to his plan and change on the fly and clearly that was something that he wasn't interested in doing.
0: Yeah, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, with the Flyers, it seems like there always is, but no, you're right. I mean, they have in the big picture if you look at it cumulatively uh been the definition of mediocrity. It's really funny though cuz the way they've gotten there has been anything but mediocre, right? It's these stretches of absolute brilliance with ten game winning streaks or whatever, followed almost immediately by massive losing streaks, and it seems like there's always something going mm-hmm. on with this team. And I don't know; it's 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 tricky because you're right. I think if you're looking at it from the view of why Hextall needed to go, um, it's pretty clear that this summer they had. I mean, they made the playoffs last year. They played a six game series that was relatively competitive with the Penguins, and you know they have a. Roster that's set up to at least be somewhat competitive right now this season. And, you know, they didn't address mm-hmm. questionable goaltending and the atrocious penalty kill they've had. And they sort of knew those were the team needs and they didn't do anything to go about fixing either of them. So I understand why fans are, um you know, sort of irritated or impatient with it. But then, you know, we look at a team like. Winnipeg, for example, right? And with the job Kevin Chevaldeau's done there, and for years there was a running joke about how he was so inactive, he wasn't making any trades, he was taking so mm-hmm. many days off, this and that. And then now everyone kind of looks at them as this sort of model of how you want to build your team through the draft and patience and letting these guys develop. So you can't really kind of have it both ways. I understand there's no no necessary blueprint for what's going to make a contender, but Whenever people talk about how Hextall was so uh, inactive or so unwilling to make big moves, I kind of can't help but look at some of these other situations and and go like, well, maybe he just needed a longer leash.
1: Yeah, I, I get that. I think there's two differences there, though. One would be that Hextall was really trying to walk the tightrope between having a team that's competitive now and also building for the future. I feel like in some ways. That's no man's land. That's like the one place you don't want to get caught. And I think the other difference is in in Winnipeg, Kevin dayoff had the complete backing of ownership with his plan that they were comfortable with, not however long it took, but they were comfortable with taking the long view. And it's quite clear that the Flyers who have perpetually had an itchy trigger finger, you know, they wouldn't be. That's not something that they would stand for. And the funny thing is, Ron Hextall got hired with Ed Snyder's blessing saying, Hey, you know, this is the guy that's going to be the breath of fresh air to do things differently than we've always done it. I think after five years or this is, they're now in their fifth season that they finally said uncle enough, like you should be further along now than you were. And I think parts of it were the goaltending, as you mentioned, I thought it was inconscionable to go into this season on a year that, you know, this team's supposed to take a step with the same goaltending that they had last year. I mean, Elliot and Neuwirth are no strangers to the injury list. These guys, I mean, Neuwirth in particular, it seems like he can't even string together a solid week of being healthy. And Elliot's a guy getting up there in age. So, you know, the fact that they didn't get that bridge to Carter Hart that they needed, to me, was one of the real downfalls. Like, I don't know how you sell that to your team when you have guys like Claude Giroux and Jake Voracek, real difference makers. I think that's the one thing that kind of drives me nuts about this team, just being in Philly, is people say, oh, well, they don't have the players to do it. Cole Giroux was second in points last year. Jake Voracek was fourth. Right. They have, or fourth in assists, excuse me. They have, you know, James Van Riemsdyk and Wayne Simmons, who statistically are pretty much locks for 30 goals every year. And they have Ivan Provorov on defense, who's a number one that's every bit as good as a Zach Lorensky that's playing 25 minutes a night and scored 17 goals last year. Like the fact that they're four points out of a playoff spot at the moment at the time Hexall was fired kind of gives you an indication that, you know, maybe it wasn't all on Dave Haxall. And I think that was the other tipping point. You mentioned the goalies and the PK, you know, look, the Flyers used to change coaches like it was their job. Uh, (laughs) So the fact that, you know, Dave Haxall was still employed after two blowout losses in a span of four days You know, that's another tipping point. I think the Flyers were looking for some sort of change, and, you know, Hextall is certainly resistant to that. So he kind of, I believe, stuck to his guns here in this case, saying, look, this is my plan, I'm sticking to it, and I could see why that didn't sit well.
0: Yeah, no, it definitely seems like, uh, you know, without any insight from information just from the outside looking in that he fell on his sword a little bit there. And I mean, listen, at, in the grand scheme of things, um, as you mentioned, they only made the playoffs twice in the Hexall era. Both were um, losing in the first round. And at the same time, mm-hmm. um, like, it's pretty fair to say that if you look at the job he did in Philly, like the Flyers are in significantly better position moving forward now than they were what he inherited right i mean just i was looking at some of his transactions and just sort of i mean first of all getting them out of that financial hell with some of the moves he was able to make and some of the contracts he was able to offload but also the pipeline like i remember for years the flyers were consistently considered to be one of the you know most barren teams in terms of prospects on their way. And they were constantly in the bottom five. And then now, um, you know, with guys like Sanheim, Lindblom, Provorov, Konechny, so on and so forth, Patrick, obviously getting that first overall pick helps. But the point is, is that whenever this team is ready to compete for a Stanley Cup again, it feels like a lot of uh, Ron Hexall's fingerprints are going to be over that, over that next generation of Flyers teams.
1: And that's why I called it a compl- uh, complicated legacy when I wrote my story on TSN.ca, just saying, look, like he did get them out of that hell that they were in. I mean, think about some of the issues that they had with their cap, Uh, the Chris Pronger LTI that he shipped off to Arizona. Um, You know, all these guys that they had that they were somehow able to find a new home for really short of Andrew McDonald. uh, And they also waited out. You know, Vinny LeCavalier, they, they dished him off to L.A. Um, you know, it's, there was a series of moves that really helped this team. And I think the draft picks moving forward that are going to continue to help this team, Joel Farabee, Jay O'Brien, uh, German Rupsov is out for the rest of the season. He's another guy. These are all impact players. He's had eight first-round picks in the span of five drafts. So um, that's a pretty significant total to add to your team. And I think that's going to be the bitter part for Hextall is that whoever's coming in is in a really nice situation because first off, you have assets that you can unload if you want to. Your pipeline is pretty full. They've been consistently ranked as one of the one or two or three best systems uh, in terms of prospects now after being so far down the rankings, as you were saying. And, so not only that, but you have pieces on your roster that you can continue to build around. I mean, Cole Giroux isn't old, uh, and same with Jake Wojcik and Games and Reemzik, They're kind of right at the end of that sweet spot that players really find a ton of success in on on that age flow chart. So, you know, to me, moving forward, it's going to be a really attractive job, also because of the cap space that they now inherit. What, $7 million, I think, as of today, uh, and a team that historically has had a pretty limitless budget for anything else that you want to do, it, you know, I, I totally get why people would be lining up to take this job based on the work that Ron's done. Unfortunate part for him, he's going to have to watch someone else kind of reap the rewards that he didn't.
0: Yeah, no, there is a lot to work with. I like a lot of the pieces they have, uh, both right now and moving forward. And I guess, you know, with that cap space you mentioned and sort of the obvious needs, particularly Annette, um, I know a guy who's been linked to the Flyers quite a bit in the recent past has been Sergei Bobrovsky with his impending free agency and sort of the uncertainty there with, you know, his future with Columbus. And obviously, I you know, everyone views him as one of the best handful of goalies in the league still. Like, do you think that Mm -hmm. that is a natural fit or do you think the fact that... Um, obviously Columbus is still a really good team that has Stanley Cup aspirations and the fact that, uh, you know, we don't typically see goalies of this pedigree move, especially at this point of their career. There's very little turnover there. I just, there's like very few historical comparables for me to look at and point to and go, okay. They almost
1: never make it to market.
0: Yeah, so like, how are we supposed to evaluate this situation? It seems like it's kind of a bit of an anomaly and that's why I'm very fascinated to see how it plays out. But obviously, you know, the fit is there, but at the same time, like, We've been down this road with the Flyers so many times before, it seems like, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't really believe in curses by any means, especially it's not a very analytical thing to say, but it feels like if they were to sign Sergei Bobrovsky to a massive mega deal, it feels like it would almost immediately wind up being something they regret.
1: Yeah, and you know what, for as well as Sergei Bobrovsky has played, I'm not even really sold that he's the answer. I get that you look at his numbers historically two-time resident winner and everything that comes with it he's been so good in the regular season he hasn't won in the playoffs that and you know he's also had a pretty wonky history when it comes to groins and staying healthy so he has certainly missed uh, his fair share of time over the years Um, it's going to require a mega deal the only thing that's interesting to me from a Philly perspective is I wonder how hungry they are to do so in the sense that they write it wrong with James and Reams over the summer signing him to that thirty-five million dollar deal, bringing him back. And do they want to try and go out and write this same wrong that they had uh, with Sergey Bobrovsky? The mistake that they made, dealing him after signing Ilya Galo, they felt like they had no choice. Um, you know, historically, I have no idea what the new GM is thinking. Uh, historically, Paul Holmgren is a guy that doesn't. Believe in spending a lot of money in GM, in goalies, excuse me, on the cap. And I think, you know, from an analytical perspective, certainly people would back that saying that, you know, you can get close to league average goaltending uh, without spending a ton. That once you get past those handful of top goalies, that really everyone else can be or has the potential to be in that same ballpark. You saw that in 2010. When they went to the Stanley Cup final with Michael Leighton. And I think that kind of reinforced that notion for the Flyers until Ed Snyder was the one who stepped in and said, We're not doing this again. We're going out and signing the best goalie available. And unfortunately, they bid against themselves, getting Ilya Bryzgalov on that humongous big contract. So mm-hmm. um, to me, I don't know which way they go. I get why they would be interested in Bobrovsky because he's the shiny new Tui on the market. But you know, I'd be curious just to look and see what else is out there. I know just off the top of my head, Cam Talbot is a pending uh, unrestricted free agent, Jimmy Howard, um, you know, no one really gets me excited, but point being that you only need a two-year deal maybe to get you to Carter Hart. They need the bridge to Carter Hart, which they haven't had, and who knows how quickly he's able to cross it, but... You know, that's that's be their goal, not any sort of long-term solution with Sergei Bobrovsky because they don't need him.
0: Yeah, I mean, it'll be a tricky thing to navigate. I imagine the, uh, you know, the GM that comes in to inherit this job, we said it is a, a very, you know, luxurious and, and um, tantalizing job for anyone to inherit because of the pieces there. But at the same time, just based on the guy who just went out the door and sort of the reason why he was let go, I imagine there's going to be quite a bit of pressure and incentive to make some sort of a splash move and sort of reinvigorate this franchise. Mm-hmm. And that could ultimately wind up being like the most detrimental thing they could possibly do. Right. So it's like, it's going to be a very tough thing to balance that and kind of stay the course while also making this your own team.
1: Yeah. I think the easiest solution would be to get a guy this year. That just is a stopgap guy Mm -hmm. that can, you know, pending UFA, that can a rental that can give you some solid and dependable goaltending from now until, you know, whenever you're finished playing, if it's April, May or June, um, I don't know how many of those guys are out there. Um, they tried at the very end with Mrazek last year, but the way that Elliott and Neuvers, their health has been, like you can't keep trotting Alex Lyon and Anthony Stolarz and, and these different guys, Cal Pickard, out there. They need some sort of dependable presence. I think it's the only right thing and just thing to do for the guys that they have that really have been playing quite well and some of the earlier difference makers that I mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we got so much here to talk about. So let's, let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about the, um, one of the more, I guess the transaction that had happened before that is, uh, the Oilers replacing Todd McClellan with Ken Hitchcock behind the bench. And I know that you've, uh, written Mm -hmm. about this and covered it and it's a situation you've been following pretty closely. Um, I don't think it's necessarily any surprise that Todd McClellan was let go considering the expectations for this team and the fact that they were underwhelming so drastically, especially in that division. Um, I think the fact that it was Ken Hitchcock raised um, some eyebrows around the league, justifiably so. Like, What do you think about that move and sort of taking a bigger picture view of it? Because I, I feel like one reason why I've been very critical of the Oilers and Peter Shirelli and the job they've done there building this team around Connor McDavid is I feel like it's been a lot of uh, you know shorter-term approaches and kind of band-aid fixes because they do feel the pressure to compete while you have the best player in the world, but at the same time, given his age and the fact that you have him under contract now for, what, seven or eight more years, like, I do feel like it's a bit disappointing that they haven't been able to take a step back and try to find longer-term solutions, and it feels like this Hitchcock Mm -hmm. one just with the lack of commitment and, the you know, where he's at in his career and the fact that they've yet to, you know, commit to anything beyond this season, like, it strikes me as just another continuation of this kind of carousel and turmoil that we've seen at Edmonton for so many years now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I see it as a self-preservation firing and hiring. Uh, Simply put, I mean, I like Ken Hitchcock. I think he has the potential to do good work. But as I said last week when the decision was made, you know, I don't care who you put behind the bench. They're not a miracle worker. And the issue with this Oiler team is roster construction. You hit it right on the head. It's been... So many band aid fixes to some pretty clear and obvious issues that they've had. And I think what hurts the most for the Oilers is that they have some pieces in their organization that could actually check all the boxes that they need, you know, in terms of finding some guys to play on the right side. Hello, Jesse Puliarvi's there. Uh, Getting a puck mover that's a right shot defenseman. Evan Bouchard is there and looked pretty good in the games that he played. So they have these pieces they need to figure out and, and set a plan in terms of how they're going to get the most out of them. And with Poliarvi in particular, to me, he's the most frustrating case out there because if you look at the situation that Todd McClellan was in and I was really critical of his usage and deployment of Pugliarvi. You know, I was thinking back to that time when Ty Ratty was out, you know, to me he was the perfect guy to slide up there on McDavid's line to see what he was like, um playing with McDavid. the numbers have also have always said that Yarby, or excuse me, McDavid gets his highest danger percentage of scoring chances when he's playing with pulllyarve and to see him not get that shot and to be scratched and then thrown in there on the fourth line and scratched again and then playing on the fourth line on his offhand side. like to me, it didn't make any sense, but when you get down to the bottom of it, You know, Todd McClellan was coaching like his job was on the line, and it's clear that it was. I think the problem for the Oilers is if Todd McClellan was coaching really with, you know, a five-year view, view, 10,000-foot view in hand, thinking that he was going to be behind this bench for a long time, he probably would have handled it differently. And we all know that he didn't have the affordability to do so, given that Peter Shirelli was breathing down his neck. But, you know, Bouchard to me is another example. He's going with veterans that he feels like he can trust instead of guys that, you know, really might help this team. I think Bouchard, there was certainly a sticking point. My understanding there is that the Oilers, Brass, and Shirelli wanted to get a longer view of Bouchard. They were willing to keep him beyond the 10 games because they really liked what he brought. Everyone made so much of Shirelli's comments on you know, we don't have any B-plus level passers on our defense. Well, Bouchard was the guy moving forward that can do that. And I think he was interested in seeing what what he looked like at the halfway point of the season as you get close to that magical 40-game mark that's way more important to teams than burning the first year on the ELC. So to me, um, there was some friction there, and when Todd McClellan sat bouchard for four straight games he left him little choice but to send him down to london for everything to do with his development and the long-term view so uh certainly some sticking points um you know ken hitchcock has raised some eyebrows and the bottom line dimitri is to do with the edmonton oilers what he couldn't do with the dallas stars last year that kind of set him on this path to retirement
0: yeah i mean i know that he's sort of um you know, obviously, I think the way we view Ken Hitchcock as a coach now has changed from his time in Columbus and in Philadelphia and so on and so forth. But I still think no one would necessarily call him as, uh, you know, the guy that you would bring in to sort of develop all your young players and give them a longer leash. And especially if we're talking bigger picture view or self-preservation tactics by the coach, like, what what incentive is there for Ken Hitchcock to try and set this Oilers team up to be a Stanley Cup contender three years from now? Of course, at this point of his career, uh, he's going to be incentivized to try and squeeze everything he can out of them right now, even if it is at the expense of future outcomes. And I think that is a big mistake. I just, I just wonder ultimately like what the end game is here. Because I think everyone would agree that Ken Hitchcock is a good coach. He's had a very successful career in NHL and I'm sure that he's going to get these guys playing better than they were under Todd McClellan. I just wonder like with the pieces he has, what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, you still look at it and it it is ultimately a roster construction thing. I mean, there's no way around the fact that, I mean, McDavid has a goal or a primary assist on like 45% of the team's goals this year, which is just truly insane. And whenever he's out on the ice, it seems like nothing's happening. And I don't, think the change of coach is ultimately going to do that much so i guess you know if you're an oilers fan um i guess the silver lining here would be this season probably will not wind up playing out the way you'd hoped it would but hopefully bigger changes are going to come this summer both in terms of management and potentially roster construction because of the way the rest of the season's going to unfold so i know it's not something you want to hear because there's been so many years of losing and you're wasting another great mm-hmm. Connor mcdavid season but it probably is sort of a you know losing the battle to win the wars uh, it, it, for a lack of a better analogy.
1: Well, and the only way to make that happen, right. Is to have Peter Shelley be fired. Hmm. You no, know? I mean, there's no chance that oiler fans are placing their trust in Peter Shelley to be the guy to be conducting this surgery in the summer based off his recent transaction history. I mean, his portfolio in Edmonton is abysmal. Um, you know, the way that he left the Boston Bruins in salary cap jail, inheriting the Oilers, knowing that he's going to get Connor McDavid, like somehow this team is in a worse spot than they were when he took over both cap wise and asset wise. Um, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's a failure of epic proportions to trade away the family jewels that you, you know, this team suffered so long to acquire like how different would this team look with Taylor Hall and Jordan Eberle, you know, in their lineup? You talk about lack of skill and lack of depth. I mean, like those two guys are a big part of it. Like, Let's go back to the Reinhardt trade before that. I mean, from day one, it hasn't been a good run, really, for Peter Sorelli. Milan Lucic, go down the list. So that's the only answer is to lose the battle and win the war for Oiler fans, is to have him, someone else be calling the shots. So... But- it's great. It's I mean, I, I just don't understand in the short term. It's exactly what it sounds like. Short term, Ken Hitchcock is here to make the playoffs and save Peter Shirley's job, that's the only reason he was brought in, you know, anything else that Ken Hitchcock is, is saying, like he's a master of, this is what I learned about being around Ken Hitchcock last week in, in San Jose and Anaheim. He's a master of telling you exactly what you want to hear. Uh, he's six, he's almost 67 years old. He, you know, no one's teaching this old dog new tricks. He's not going to all of a sudden, you know, treat Jesse Pugliarvi differently than he has a lot of the other players. I know that he said that it's his his project. And like, to me, it's just a small sample size, but game one, I mean, how many minutes did Pugliarvi play in the Oilers loss at the Kings? Not many. Um, The situation he used in wasn't all that different than what we saw under Todd McClellan. So some of it's window dressing that Oilers fans are hearing, you know, exactly what Ken Hitchcock is saying is what they want to hear. I just, you know, I need to see it to believe it first before I believe that this is anything other than a grab to try and just make the playoffs with Connor McDavid.
0: Right. And obviously, I mean, when you do have Connor McDavid and you make the playoffs, we've seen in the past, you know, you have a chance to do something special. But I think if you're an Oilers mm-hmm. fan, like, wouldn't that be the worst case scenario for the outcome of this season to like ride those top guys to to the point of making the playoffs and then like losing in round one. And then all of a sudden, you know, Peter Shirley can go to ownership and go like, Oh, we're moving in the right direction. Now that we have this new coach and all of a sudden Hitchcock and Shirelli are back for another season. And you're just kind of in this never ending loop of just spinning your tires in the mud. Like it seems like that would probably be the worst case scenario for, for the, you know, this franchise moving forward.
1: I said it before with the flyers. No man's land is the absolute worst place to be in the NHL. Yeah.
0: And it seems like that's exactly where the Oilers are, which is very upsetting, and I've said this time and time again on this podcast, but you know, people always come at me for being overly critical of Shirelli and making fun of the Oilers, and it comes from a place of just I'm not mad I'm disappointed, because as a hockey fan and as someone who covers this league for a living, like I want to watch Connor McDavid on the biggest stage competing for the ultimate prize and mm-hmm it's a disservice to everyone out there that that's not happening because he's so freaking good and it's very clear he's the best player in the world and there's only so much one player can do in hockey unfortunately and um until that changes it's we're just going to keep rehashing the same conversation over and over again
1: i said before the oilers are the best team in the league when Connor McDavid is on the ice and they're the worst when he's off of it yeah. he only plays 22 or 23 minutes a night they need to figure out what they're doing with the other you know 37 or 38 minutes because it's abysmal they they it's just to think of where they were and where they've now gotten to and they've gone in the opposite direction while having Connor mcdavid like i don't it i don't know that you could make all these same mistakes again if you tried to be this bad
0: <laughs> all right that's a great place for us to take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor and we'll uh we'll pick up this conversation on other things Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust out there. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go, because they're going to do all the work for you by pulling millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek is going to get you closer to their action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever before. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, they're going to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase with them is fully guaranteed so you can shop for your tickets with full confidence knowing that what you pay for is what you're going to get. That's why you need to make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. People that have listened to this show in the past know that uh, I constantly use SeatGeek myself for any type of sporting event that I go to. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't had the good fortune of going to any events recently, but that's mostly because I'm a nerd who's constantly sitting at home watching hockey. And fortunately, uh, my f- listeners out there live more uh, exciting and fulfilling lives and take me up on my offer and uh, use SeatGeek to get out there and have some fun themselves. And most recently, uh, one of my listeners, Billy Hanley, who's an Islanders fan, got to go out and watch an Islanders Rangers game. And I'm, even though his team didn't wind up winning on that night at least he got to see a Cody McLeod goal up close and personal and he's going to be sharing that story and regaling his grandchildren with it one day so it's all worth it as my listeners uh, you're going to get ten dollars off your first SeatGeek purchase just for listening to the show and all you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today that's promo code PDO for ten dollars off your first SeatGeek purchase now let's get back to the show Okay Frank, as the guest, I'll give you the choice. Do you want to talk about the Dylan Strome trade that happened last night? Or do you want to get into the whole Willie Nylander situation? Which which uh which topic interests you more? Ooh, um, I mean we're gonna do both, it's just the a matter Nylander of situation. Okay. So there's three options here, obviously, right? There's trade him, there's sign him to a contract. Um whether it's short or long-term or there's just him sitting out all year. Um, you know, this conversation could obviously be deemed, uh, kind of outdated because the December 1st deadline's approaching and any day now we could find out some sort of resolution to this, Mm -hmm. but I mean, are you, okay, I guess the first natural question here is, are you surprised that it has taken this long for something to play out?
1: Yeah, I am. I, I think, you know, this is really unprecedented. Um, in the sense that no one has lasted this long among RFAs under, you know, the post-lockout salary cap world. Um, I'm not surprised that both sides have dug in based on what this means in the real long view for both sides. Yeah. Obviously the easy part to dissect is Kyle Dubas, not only in his first, negotiation or real tense negotiation as a GM to not back down and send the message to agents and GMs around the league that he's going to stand tall. The other part is he's got a budget that he has to work with. They made a promise to John Tavares that when he signed for 11 million bucks, that he would have the, the necessary cap flexibility to retain all the players that they had when he signed. He said that he wanted to come, Tavares did an ad, not subtract. And so you can see how their budget unravels pretty quickly, given how well Mitch Marner has played and what Austin Matthews is going to demand based off of what or how much more than six and a half or 6 million bucks William Nylander ultimately signs for. So uh, I can see from the Nealander side as well, because they don't want to be outdone so quickly um, with the next contract signed by Marner and Matthews. They want to make sure that when, you know, whatever those two guys are inked up next year at some point, that he's in a relatively comparable ballpark. And I think you look at deals like the David Posternak one, which everyone is now obviously saying is such a bargain, um, you know, he wants to make sure that he's not talked about in that same light, that you know, perhaps you only get one crack at this is that having gone through this to make some real life changing money and wants to make sure that he takes advantage. So I'd be shocked at the end of it. If December 1 rolls around on Saturday and 5.01, the Maple Leafs don't have a deal and William Nylander is the guy that's sitting out for the year, I think they'd move him before that. But I understand, you know, that they've come a long way and they're still not over the finish line as
0: well. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems crazy that there's even the potential that there wouldn't be a resolution to this this season just because of the caliber of player and the caliber of the team and the fact that, you know, they do have cup aspirations this season and he would obviously help them quite a bit. But, you know, in his case, I kind of, I sympathize with him, right? Because on the one hand, um, he's taking a lot of hits publicly right now because, you know, fans have this weird way of always backing the teams they support rather than the players and they just want to see him out there helping contribute to their team and he can't really prove himself out there while he's sitting um and the Leafs themselves I mean what they're ninth and five on five offense fourth overall and that's with Matthews missing a large chunk of the season so it's not like they've necessarily uh been this team that's really did, craved his os- his offensive value at the same time though like you know, you kind of forget how good he's been the past two years, and also the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, you may you raise a lot of those great points. I mean, the cap's going to be rising. Uh, Marner's extension's coming in. A lot of these other RFAs are about to get paid. Uh, there's obviously the injury risk. I mean, the whole seen, RFA
1: market's you know, about to change.
0: It is. And, and the, yeah, of course, the entire financial landscape's going to change. And if you're him, like, I understand people might view that as as being greedy, but at the same time, you might only have this one situation. And who knows, the next time you step out on the ice, you could have a career-ending injury, for all you know. And I'm always fully in support of the players looking out for themselves and their best interest and trying to squeeze out every ounce Mm -hmm. of value they can. So um, that's ultimately where I stand on it. But it is obviously frustrating that he's not out there playing because he's a heck of a player to watch, and he'd help this Leafs team become even more special offensively. So it just seems like, yeah, it's it's crazy that... um, we don't have a resolution yet, but it seems even crazier that potentially he could go all year without playing, considering all of that.
1: Yeah, I think the one big thing with Nylander is the Maple Leafs don't need him as well as they've played. They don't need him in October, November, December. They need to add one more difference maker in a playoff series that can help put this team over the top. As well as they've played, they don't have anything to show for it over the last couple of years. And I think that's what's hurt. And not having a guy like Melander another weapon in your lineup that just, you know, adds to the depth that you already have. There's a debate, you know, is the best top nine in hockey in Toronto? Is it in Winnipeg? Um, you know, to me, i probably give the edge to Winnipeg, but I understand with Toronto and how well they've played. Um, you know, it's it's a heck of a debate and they need one more weapon that they can throw at teams in a playoff series, not not in the here and now. So that's the kind of big big long-term view is that's exactly what you get with William Nylander if he's under contract.
0: Right. Yeah, like I, I, I love Kasperi Kapanen's game, and he looked great for that little stretch while Matthews was still healthy, but it's pretty clear watching that there's a different level there of uh, offensive ability and kind of creativity yes. and capability when Nylander's out there with Matthews. And I don't know, like do you think – is has there been more rumblings behind the scenes in terms of uh, the Leafs exploring that trade market, or is it one of those things where they're really waiting until they get to you know? right before the deadline before they fully explore that because i imagine there's a ton of interest around the league for a what 22 year old or whatever nylander is now with his uh, resume and his ability and especially you'd think that the team acquiring would probably be even more incentivized to play him down the middle as opposed to where he's been playing on the wing on the leafs like so he has a ton of trade value and it feels like we've only really heard the hurricanes i guess maybe just because of the way the Roster is kind of fit in terms of potential trades with defensemen they have. But has there been more of that, or are we just not um, hearing about it?
1: I think there's been more that the Leafs have done a really good job of keeping quiet. I think my my sense of the situation is that as it stands on Monday, five or six days before the deadline, Kyle Kubis has a general sense of from teams what he could get for William Nylander. Now, if you get to the final 48 hours and there's still no deal, my sense is that the communication would increase to the point where he's starting to press teams on, well, can I get this? Uh, over and above what he already kind of has as an initial idea. And so that's kind of, I think, how he's proceeded in this you know, negotiation. But the interesting part that not a lot of people have hit on, Dimitri, is the fact that the Nylander camp has the ability here to talk to all of these other 30 teams. It's a unique situation in that he can any leverage that the Leafs were trying to create by having that story out there that Kyle Dubas was beginning to field initial offers or initial uh, get a sense what he could get is they can do the same thing. They can call a team and, first off, they can scuttle things by saying, look, there's no chance that we'd sign with you. Like, this is what we'd be asking for that's a different or maybe above what we're looking for in Toronto. Um, He can also get a sense to, you know, is this real? And it kind of decreases the Leafs' leverage from that standpoint that these two sides are on a level playing field here and that they can talk to all 30 teams, which is really rare for a guy that could potentially be traded.
0: I mean, you mentioned this. Uh, let's talk about the whole league here and how this impacts it. I know uh, there are 30 other other teams other than the Leafs, and this situation will obviously influence that. And you know, you mentioned the RFA class and how the landscape's going to change and everything. And you just look at the list of guys, and you know, you have Miko Rantanen with this insane season he's having uh Braden Point who's right up there in terms of goal scoring I mean Matthew Kachuk Sebastian Aho. you go on down the line I mean Patrick Liney, for goodness sake there's so many guys that are about to get paid and cash in this summer do you think that this entire situation and sort of how it's unfolding um is going to influence those transactions we see uh that are coming up this summer in terms of both uh the team's need or desire they have to make something happen quickly before they get priced out of stuff or from the players perspective now that we are seeing a bit of a historical precedence with what Neilander is doing, similar to kind of what we saw with, in the NFL with Le'Veon Bell mm-hmm. this year, um, do you think that's going to kind of just
1: kind of increase their patience?
0: Yeah, that's going to go, OK, listen, like now I'm seeing how this is playing out and obviously we'll see what the resolution is and how it winds up working out for Neilander. But I imagine there's players around the league that are looking at this and even if they're not saying so publicly, um, kind of taking stock of what's going on and wondering how they can use that to gain leverage for themselves moving forward.
1: And are probably rooting for him too, right? I yep. mean, there's, it's an interesting situation. And I think the other part that you didn't mention, you covered it off pretty well is just that there's two other contracts out there that have also kind of helped set the table along the way that have really helped Nylander. If not specifically, then more so will help guys like Renton and Matthews and so on. And Marner really is, the Jack Eichel deal at ten million dollars a year and Leon Draisaitl at eight and a half. I mean, the Eichel one is fascinating. That you know, teams and players, excuse me, and agents are now looking at that. If you're a guy like Marner, saying, "Well, if Jack Eichel is at ten, then I should be at ten and a half, or maybe even north of that." It starts to get really interesting really quick. Like I, if I hear that Jack Eichel is a ten million dollar player, I don't bat an eye at all at Marner being at that same level. If not above. So those are two deals that everyone is looking for as have already kind of changed the landscape. And then whatever Nylander gets is just kind of on top of that as well, given what he's went through to help get to that point
0: yeah and I imagine like the Jets who are sort of in a similar spot here in terms of uh their upward trajectory as a franchise and some of the young talent they have that's about to get paid you know they have similar to how the Leafs have uh Nylander and Marner I guess you know those guys are a year spread apart this summer the Jets have to make some decisions on Kyle Connor and Patrick Lyon and I mean obviously it's a great problem to have if both guys keep playing the way they have this season but Given their financial situation and how much those guys are set to be paid, and how this Neilander situation is unfolding, all of a sudden, um, you know, you start to try to make the numbers work, and your head gets spinning thinking about how the Jets are going to make that work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's going to have to come at a cost to something because, really, realistically, I think the conversation we're going to have, be having with the Winnipeg Jets at this point next year is the same one that's been ongoing with the Leafs forever, which has been: will they have the defenseman? to really stand up and, and make a difference and rely upon in a Stanley cup run, because maybe the one guy left standing is Dustin in Buffalo at 7.6 million. But true is an RFA at 5.5 Myers is a UFA at 5.5. How do you figure a way to kind of keep everyone together, depending on what you're giving Lining If he's anywhere close to 50 goals, I don't like, I don't know what that number looks like. I don't even want to spitball, but Kyle Connor, like, To me, he's the one guy that if they had him in Toronto, like they'd be jumping up and down screaming, uh, you know, 31 goals last year. The chemistry that he showed with lining in the five-goal game, I mean, it's incredible. He's a legit top-end player at the age of 21. So he's another guy that that said they're going to have to pay, and all of a sudden it gets pretty top-heavy. What a bargain, though, like that they were able to lock up certain guys long-term, Strikingly six point one two five like it's incredible he's locked up as long as blake wheeler is now who kicks in next season at eight and a quarter so um they were able to kind of strike early and perhaps in some ways you, you catch you on both sides you know you're talking about you know farmer phase before and will teams strike earlier when players decide to be more patient for every Posternak you have like sometimes you end up with a guy like nick healers who you know, I'm not down on, but you look at this season, something's definitely off. Um, started the year on the fourth line, 29 goals last year. Uh, this year through 22 games has five goals and five assists. And he's really struggled at times and hasn't been noticeable. So he's a guy in the first year of a $42 million deal that for the Jets is pretty significant at 6 million. But given that cost certainty, as much as it, you know, might hurt next year, he also is a guy that you could potentially probably unload pretty easily to another team if you really wanted to at that cost.
0: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I guess I'm just curious to see what, uh, what Mikko Rantanen is going to fetch after he finishes this year with 130 points. <laughs> he is a beast. Yeah. Yeah. I took a lot of flack. I, uh, I wasn't too high on him when I was ranking wingers at the start of the season. And, uh, you know, I probably should have been more glowing in my evaluation of him, but yeah, he's, uh, what him, McKinnon, and Landis Cog are doing right now is a sight to behold, and uh, he's going to be earning quite quite a nice little payday. Um, Frank, let's take one more quick break here, and then we're going to talk about that uh, strong trade on the other end of things. Those of you that listened to last week's podcast episode with Nick Mercadante, where we ranked the goalies, uh, you heard us talk about what a ridiculously good season Henrik Lundqvist is having yet again. The man's got a number of things going for him, quite clearly. Uh, he's a marvel if you think about our statistical anomaly in every sense of the word. He's out here as a 36-year-old, posting a 9.20 save percentage yet again, backstopping a Rangers team that's shockingly sitting in a playoff spot in what we thought would be a loaded Metro division before the season. And yet as good as he's once again been at stopping the puck at this age, arguably his biggest achievement yet is maintaining that beautiful, luscious flow on top of his head. The reality is that most of us aren't Henrik Lundqvist, unfortunately. Don't I know it. And it's 66... 66- percent of men actually lose their hair by age 35 but the thing is when you start to notice hair loss it's too late because it's a lot easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost for those of us out there that unfortunately aren't blessed with king hendrix immaculate genetics why do we instead turn to either weird solutions or just do nothing at all when we can simply turn to the medicine and science that we have right in front of our very noses there's now an easier solution that can save you time money and a lifetime of regret and that's 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and other wellness supplements for men. Hymns connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat that hair loss. They provide well-known, generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. It's prescriptions backed by science. You don't have to go to a waiting room or you know have those awkward in-person doctor visits and you can instead save yourself hours by simply going to 4 and doing all of this online at your computer. It's so easy, all you have to do is answer a few questions and a doctor is going to review and prescribe exactly what you need, and those products will be shipped directly to your door. So to order now, um, as my listener, you can get a trial month of HIMS for just $5 today while supplies last. Go to the website and check out all the full details and realize that what would otherwise cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or pharmacy you can get for just five dollars now go to com slash pdo that's com slash pdo com slash pdo and now let's get back to the show okay so uh last night we got a, a little sunday night special um the blackhawks and the coyotes for seemingly the uh, forty five thousandth time traded and um we saw it Recap and Nick Schmaltz moved for Dylan Strome and and Brendan Perlini. Um let's I guess let's take this from the Hawks perspective because I feel like you know Dylan Strom is the biggest name involved in this trade, and it's watching the discourse about him online has been fascinating to me because the pros of him are obviously you know quite obvious. He's still only 21 years old. He has a track record of success Mm -hmm. as a big-time point producer at both the OHL level and also more importantly, the AHL level last year. Um the concerns with him. Uh, I Watching him play, I, I do think the, the skating is a major red flag, and I'm not sure it's going to mm-hmm. stop him from being an NHL player for a long time. But in terms of getting to those heights that he has at previous levels, I think that is a big sticking point. And the other thing is, and this is something I really wanted to get to because it's a major pet peeve of mine. If I see one more person cite the fact that he was taken third overall as a reason why he couldn't possibly be traded... I am going to do something very bad because <laughs> it's it's it it just drives me crazy. Like people don't seem to grasp the concept of sunk costs and the fact that as soon as he's taken third overall, uh, that pretty much stops. It loses all value. Like it, it sucks that the Coyotes missed out on Marner and Provorov and Orensky and so on and so forth. Um, but once mm-hmm. you take that guy at third overall, like that's a sunk cost, and ultimately you have to reevaluate based on what he's done up until this point and. What he's done, especially at the NHL level in albeit only 48 games, is not very much. So I don't know. like Where are you at with this one? Because on paper, just based on name value, I see people talking about it as a slam-down home run trade for the, for the Blackhawks. But when you actually look at it a bit closer, I'm not necessarily sure how to feel about it.
1: Yeah, I would kind of lean towards this being a win for the Coyotes, to be honest. Um, I thought John Chayka hit it on the head. By the way, Strom wasn't his draft pick. Trico was hired in 2016. Right. Strome was drafted third overall in 2015. Um, he, he said today that there's a difference between patience and hope and that the latter is not a way to build your organization. And I totally agree. Like Once you get to the point where you feel like Dylan Strome isn't going to be a real difference maker for your team and you can get a player that you can depend upon in Schmaltz, the guy who gave the Blackhawks, what, 21 goals last year? Mm-hmm. Like, to me, I would take that deal um, in a second. The only question is Perlini, who did score 17 last year for the Coyotes. And and so from the Blackhawks' perspective, Stan Bowman was saying, look, we got two NHL players for the price of one. We're going to make that deal any day of the week. Um, it, has it gotten that bad in Chicago that they're just dying for bodies at this point? I mean, I guess it has given... Uh, their lack of prospect depth and the fact that they traded so many draft picks over the years to get the Stanley cups deals that you'll make every single time. They're now paying the price for it. But I kind of like the forward thinking from Trica saying, like, look, at a certain point, we're just cutting ties here. We don't think Dylan Stroman is going to be the guy here. We don't think he's ever going to be the guy. And there's a difference between kind of what you said, it just being an NHL player versus being a difference maker. And that's what the Coyotes clearly weren't seeing in Strom. The same question marks that have existed for the last two and a half years since Charka took over still existed today, and and now it's time to make
0: the move. Yeah. I mean, listen, like, neither you or I are qualified enough to, as skating coaches or skating experts, to say whether Strom can, like, biomechanically get better at skating. I mean, we've seen guys like Bo Horvat and John Tavares and so on and so it forth. Happened. Improve, and obviously with technology these days, like, it's quite possible, especially at 21 years old, but at the same time, um, right, to be that elite player where you're a point of game, or even better as he's been in the AHL and both OHL, you do need skating in today's league, and um, I'm very curious to see how he develops. I mean, listen, and both teams are ultimately looking for the same thing here it feels like which is that kind of elusive number two center and um i'm -hmm. very fascinated to see how it plays out like i i like schmaltz every time i watch him i think he's a very talented playmaker now the issue with him is you know when he put up big numbers at the university of north dakota he was riding shotgun with brock besser and then on the blackhawks all of his best uh nights typically came playing on that line with patrick kane and it's it's He's been in great spots, obviously, to produce offensively, and I'm fascinated to see whether he has an extra gear or how much of it was his own doing. And I don't know. It seems like a calculated bet. Um, I think, like I said, I just wanted to make the point that I don't think it's necessarily as as big of a slam dunk in either direction, really. It seems like a pretty fair uh, trade where both teams are are taking on some risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, Smalls is clearly the more defined player at this point. Knowing And knowing what you're getting, I just place a high value on that. You know, sometimes potential is the play. In this case, we know enough about Dylan Strom at this point to make some sort of judgment. I don't mean we. I mean, the Coyotes have seen him up close and personal. They know him better than anyone. If they're making that bet, you know, we always see, you know, we're always like, wow, look at this first rounder that's been traded. You know, Marco Dano is a guy just with a Chicago connection. Everyone's like, Know, first rounder traded that's so interesting, can't wait to get that guy in my lineup, and you kind of figure out like teams are so invested in first round picks like they don't just trade him unless they have a real good idea that he's not going to work out. It's kind of rare that a guy does get traded and plays better somewhere else. There's way more the other way around. Uh, than
0: that way. Yeah. I mean, it goes both ways, obviously, because I don't want to necessarily be like, you know, doing the whole appeal to authority thing here because teams clearly make mistakes and guys get traded uh, prematurely and wind up blossoming. But you're right. I mean, if you had a guy in your system for a couple of years and all of a sudden uh, a team that has had that guy is very willing to trade him all of a sudden for what you perceive to be below market value, like it should raise some red flags for why they are so willing to move on. Sure. Right. Um, No question. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, is there anything else with that trade? I mean, the Blackhawks have been interesting just because, um, you know, obviously they make the coaching change. And I think it's been fascinating to watch how they've performed since then, because, they bring in this young coach from the AHL level and you think, okay, this is going to be a bit of a youth movement and they're going to embrace the rebuild, but it's been anything but that where it's pretty much, they've top loaded their lineup with veterans and they're just riding those guys into the ground and trying to squeeze out some wins here. And I don't know what the end game is or what the long-term plan is, but it's kind of been counterintuitive to what I feel like people were expecting when that move did happen.
1: Yeah. It's basically been like, play Patrick Kane until his wheels fall off, right?
0: Yeah, and Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook as the top pair. It's, it's been I don't know what year it is, but it doesn't feel like it's 2018-19 uh, with <laughs> how the Blackhawks are playing.
1: Well, more I'm more curious, you know, less interested in the Blackhawks and more curious where does Joel Quenville land? Mm. You know, like I wonder if the Flyers end up hiring, say, Ron Francis, for instance. Is Quenville the guy that he brings in? Um, you know, clearly the Flyers are looking for some sort of splash to bring it full circle to the beginning of, of our conversation. I mean, Ron Francis has a deep, longstanding relationship with with Quenville from their playing days in Hartford. Like, you would think that that would be a really obvious connection, and Flyers fans have been clamoring for Quenville uh, as a guy that can come in and be that difference maker for this team. Um, you know, what a bloody month it's been. November still has a few days left uh curious what that means for William Nylander's season but the fact that it's been four head coaches and now a GM in a span of like three weeks it's been it's been pretty interesting
0: yeah no it has and I'm thankful for that um yeah I don't know is there any other big kind of big picture storylines that we haven't hit on here I mean it seems like we've kind of gotten to most of the transactional stuff at least
1: yeah I'm really fascinated in Buffalo Mm -hmm. um they're the team that, you know, they're ahead of the Toronto Maple Leafs at this point through the same number of games played, which is fascinating. I mean, I know a nine game win streak will certainly help you out a bit in the standings, but, um, just going through the player media tour in September, like I polled all the guys that I talked to, 30 some, 36 of them or something, and they were all saying their two surprise teams were Buffalo and Arizona. And Arizona has gotten it together when you consider kind of how bad their start was, that they've really, you know, turned it around at times. They're kind of slumping again. Uh, but the Pacific has been so bad and has, you know, has quickly become the old Southeast division. Mm-hmm. Like you look at the teams that are in playoff spots and how underwhelming they've been and how bad the Pacific has been and in, in all. Like, I don't think you know, other than maybe LA, I don't know that there's going to be a point up until the very end that you're going to be declaring teams like Arizona, Edmonton and Vancouver out. And really what does the Buffalo Sabres being in that top three spot mean for the rest of the East for teams that kind of thought that they would be in the mix that all of a sudden at least at this point bumps Boston to a wild card spot. And they've been pretty much exactly that this season, a wild card at times. Um, you know what does that mean for the rest of the East? So it's it's kind of been fascinating to figure out. A lot of teams, you know, a lot of people were thinking that uh, this would be the year, maybe that the Atlantic gets a couple more teams in than the Metro. But the Metro has produced the last three Stanley Cup winners. I don't know. It's been crazy to see.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it has. I mean, um, I better do a, a sabers deep dive here in the pdo soon. they're such a fascinating team it's it's crazy how much uh can change in such a short period of time because i remember when the jeff skinner trade happened this summer my whole argument was i feel like um you know he obviously he had that no move clause and he, and he could have kind of dictated his fate a little bit and he did by turning some destinations down but i felt like the sabers could probably flip him for more at this year's deadline than what they paid for him so it was a smart move regardless and then now after this otherworldly start to his season uh We're instead talking like, how much money could he possibly make from the Sabres on his next contract, and is there incentive to sign him or play this out and see how it goes? I mean, obviously, you don't want to uh, pay for a guy when he's at his absolute peak, both in terms of production and shooting percentage. And playing with Jack Eichel certainly helps. But I mean, clearly, that change of scenery has done wonders for him, and he looks like a massive difference maker for him. And all of a sudden, now that. Jack Eichel has a running mate, and they're getting legitimate goaltending from Carter Hutton, and taking these training wheels off of Rasmus Dahlin a bit as we go along in the season. I mean, there's certainly plenty to point to as reasons for optimism moving forward if you're a Sabres fan.
1: Well, and you hit it right on the head. Like, what do you what do you do with him contract wise? Like, how much do you pay him, knowing what you're going to have to pay guys like Dahlin, uh down the line? I mean, it's like to me um the initial ask was it north of nine million bucks for jeff skinner Mm. it sounded absolutely crazy but he's a guy that's three times hit 30 goals in his career he's still only what 26 i mean he doesn't turn 27 until may so he's right in that prime window um to me he's just been all over the map kind of streaky wise like you know he has a great year and then has a down year You know, that's part of that, I would imagine, is playing in Carolina with some of the tough teams that they had. He's never made the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, what do you pay this guy? Like, 13 goals, he's leading the league in even strength goals this year. I mean, it's been an incredible run. And where did Jack Eichel, the playmaker, come from? He's the guy (laughs) that, since his draft year, we thought of him as being a sniper And now he's got five goals and 23 assists. Like, what a ridiculous change of event.
0: (laughs) Well, I think finally having someone to actually pass the puck to probably helps quite a bit. Yeah, no question. But still, five goals? Come on. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, he's an awesome player. I mean, the stuff he can generate with his speed, and it seems like a natural fit. And I think if you're Buffalo, you ultimately wind up letting this one play out, at least for the time being, and see what happens. I think if you're approaching the trade deadline and you're still competitive and Jeff Skinner's at a pretty much goal per game all of a sudden that's a great problem to have and then you maybe recalibrate but uh i feel like you know you will eventually come back down to earth a little bit and as well as asking price i imagine so it seems like this is one of those uh situations where it's probably best off to wait and see how it unfolds uh frank plug some stuff what uh what are you working on these days where can people check you out uh,
1: just the usual spot tsn.ca and on twitter all of the normal same old stuff going on uh we got world junior coming up in december on the holidays and other than that i just write about people getting fired
0: mm, fun stuff are you going to be coming to vancouver for the world juniors i will well we might be uh we should do an in-person podcast then how about that let's do it i'm in all right i'm looking forward to it and i before you get out of here i'm going to let the listeners know uh peek behind the curtain Frank today, big time me. We were going to record earlier and then all of a sudden you, uh, you're sliding into my DMs telling me you got to go on TV instead and pushing it back. So uh, you're a big shot. So I'm glad you, uh, you, you had some time to make for the cast and to come on and chat. And uh, it was good to finally have you back on and hopefully we can do it again soon.
1: Not, I'm not a big timer, just a mercenary. I go where <laughs> I'm told and I go where I'm paid. So happy to join you anytime, Dimitri.
0: Awesome. Chat soon. Before we do get out of here, I wanted to quickly give a shout-out to Puckpedia, a website that's made life significantly easier for me and the Hockeypedia cast ever since bursting onto the scene. Uh, Puckpedia.com recently launched, and it's the ultimate source for hockey fans. It's got... Any type of information, really, that you could be looking for, whether it's salary cap info, player salaries, basic and advanced stats, draft and transaction history, news feeds, injury news, game previews, uh, whatever you're looking for, they're going to have it. And that's ultimately the main selling point here for Puckpedia, because during a time where... You know, if you're looking for a bunch of different stuff for a story or to try and prove a point to your friends in an argument you're having, uh, you're going through various different outlets and opening a bunch of tabs to try and, you know, get to the bottom of it. And Puckpedia has made it easy enough for you to just uh, have a one-stop shop for all that information. Um, it's become my go-to source when I'm preparing for the show because it's so user-friendly and easy to navigate. And like I said, um, has everything that I need in that one place, so I don't need to be bouncing around, uh, you know. I've talked about on the show before. I personally really love the agent information they have, um, with the agent leaderboard and, um, trying to figure out, uh, you know, which players are represented by which agents and, and all that goodness. But they also got, you know, stuff like for today's show, for example, and I was praying, preparing for my conversation with Frank. I'm trying to figure out who the upcoming, uh, RFAs are in that conversation we are having. And right there, uh, in just a couple clicks. I've got it all listed and sorted for me. And, uh, like i said it makes life significantly easier for me and i'm sure it'll help you out as well so um, go check out puckpedia.com uh, follow them on twitter at puckpedia and uh, look forward to all the useful information they're tweeting out there uh, whether it's signings or news or any kind of transaction really with that said uh, we're going to get out of here from now finally um, thanks for listening to today's show and remember to listen to the podcast on spotify if that's your cup of tea um and go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. It's be uh, greatly appreciated and helps us out. And, yeah, I think that's all for now. So thanks for listening and check back later this week for another episode of the Hockey cast. The Hockey cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash